Our text this morning will be Psalm 42. I'll be reading in the version that's up here on the slides will be from the New King James Version uh, rather than the English Standard Version, and that will be explained more clearly next week. So this is, this is how uh, Presbyterians get people to come to church, uh, like build up excitement, so it'll be like a two-part series. So um, I'm not going to tell you why, and, and, and yeah, so this is... I learned a lot of marketing stuff from Hollywood. Uh, so we're going to hear Psalm 42 in its entirety. Psalm 42, to the chief musician, a contemplation of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I, I went with them to the house of God, with a voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Our Lord, we ask then that now by your Spirit speaking through your word, you would teach us what it is to thirst for you. Amen. Psalm 42 is a disquieting psalm. It's a psalm of a soul which is disquieted, but it disquiets itself. That opening line, as a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you, O God. It's a great line. Uh, it's a line that most uh, musicians, most uh, pop artists would kill for. And uh, I, I'm reminded of everything but the girls song that came out in the mid-90s, you'll remember. Uh, the, but it's, it started with a line, I miss you like the desert misses the rain. Like, oh, that's really good, right, for a love song. And then like, so same thing, as a deer pants for the water brook, so pants my soul for you. That's, that's an awesome line, and it's been ripped off, um, like shamelessly, uh, by any number of Christian songwriters over the years. We, we just heard, sang one, right, satisfied, uh, uses, uses that metaphor, 
But where does that go? All those songs go to God as a place of security and of hope. Psalm 42 doesn't do that. Psalm 42 is the expression of a disquieted, of a troubled soul, but by itself, it disquiets and it troubles. Uh, There's metaphors shift. They move around. There's not a resting place. There's this, there's this, there's this, uh, things keep moving. It's hard to see where the psalm is going. It's sort of, and it leaves in a note of, unresolution, it's unresolved, rather. It's an unresolved note. It's unclear. Where is God? Where is this God? And why does he not speak uh, when the enemies surround? It's not a psalm that comforts, but rather it is a psalm which disquiets. Because, because that is the nature of the life we lead. And this psalm expresses that. And yet, even as it does so, the takeaway from Psalm 42, that which the psalmist wants you to remember, the sons of Korah want you to remember, beloved, is that you are, in fact, surrounded by your God's loving kindness. But you get there by thirsting for God. Your soul thirsts for God as a deer pants for the water brooks. So pants my soul for you, O God. And that's the, it's a beautiful metaphor. It's something that you've heard so often if you've been a Christian for 10 to 20 minutes. They just heard that over and over and over again in all of the songs. And so it's sort of become rote to us. But by itself, that idea of thirst and need and longing that can only be satisfied by God himself. He is the only one who can satisfy us. Everything else in this world is empty and vain and useless and does not satisfy. Only God can satisfy your needs. And of course, we know as we read, my soul thirsts for you for the living God, that that points us ultimately to he who provides living water. We heard earlier from John chapter 4 where Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. I mean, just, I, sh- I probably should have started with verse 13. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He's talking about the water in the well. Regular water, the things of this world, of course, if we want to take that metaphorically, allegorically, that the Anything in this world, anything that you might drink from is going to make you thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It is only God who can ultimately satisfy your needs. It is only through our Lord Jesus Christ that the deepest longings of your soul can be put to rest. And when the psalmist says in the end of verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God, we need to see that as a very literal question. It's, it's helpful for us to put ourselves into the Old Testament context in which this was written, because of course, during the time of the sons of Korah, whenever it was that this group of, the, of Levites, this family of Levites wrote this particular psalm, they had the tabernacle or the temple. And you'll remember that during the Old Testament time, you could actually go to the tabernacle and after it, the temple, and be in the literal presence of God. 
that God, even though God, even under the Old Covenant times, of course, is omnipotent and omnipresent, He is everywhere, and the Psalms speak of that. Solomon speaks of that at the dedication of the temple, and yet God promises to be in the temple, to have a localized presence in the temple, where that's where sacrifices during the Old Covenant times were only supposed to be offered up in the tabernacle and the temple after it. And so it is possible, quite literally, as the sons of Korah write, to go to be in God's presence. When shall I go and appear before God? And there's a temporal equivalent to this, then, of, of wanting to be in God's presence that we have, of longing to get before God uh, every Sunday morning and being away from Him. Only God can satisfy your needs, and so you need to draw near to God. Your soul's thirst will be satisfied only when you are in God's presence in worship, but, verse 3, you drink tears instead. My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? Tears. Tears are water, so you think they would satisfy thirst. Except, of course, there's salt water, uh, and salt water doesn't satisfy thirst. Salt water actually makes thirst worse. I don't know if everybody's had the opportunity to go visit the ocean or the sea or whatever, uh, but you don't drink that water, or you, or you ought not drink that water. Uh, it's, it's, it's just going to make you thirstier. And so that's what tears are, except worse, of course. Tears are sorrow. And honestly... I can't imagine drinking tears. It just sounds horrible. And that's the point, is that in my weeping, I'm weeping and sorrowing so much that all I have to drink are tears. Those are my food. It's poison. Instead of getting living water from God, from the living God, I have poison. The poison of my own sorrow and of my own mourning and weeping. And why? Because God is gone. They continually say to me, where is your God? God appears to be gone. I will say to God, my rock, verse 9, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with the breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is your God? And here's another point in the psalm where it's important to remember the Old Testament context in which this was written. The sons of Korah are working, ministering, living in a context where everybody is a Christian, right? And this is, this is one of the things that we know as, as Presbyterians, as, as, as people who believe in the whole Bible, that God has had a people from the fall, from, from, in, the, in the constitution of the church with Adam and Eve, and all the way through time, it's been one people of God. And during the Old Testament times, they went under the name of the people of Israel, but they are like us, the same faith, same God, ultimately the same hope. So these are, now they're living in Israel. That's the Old Testament church. So their enemies are not secular humanists, because there weren't any. Right? Their enemies were not 
college professors uh, or whoever, or, or, or you know, liberals or whatever it is that you're afraid of, those people, the bad people who don't go to church on Sunday. People, yeah, all those people, all those bad people don't go to church on Sunday. The enemies are people who go to church on Sunday. There are other people who profess the same faith. And, it's, and, and I point that out, I dwell on that, because it's worth thinking about then what makes these people enemies in this psalm. It's because they keep asking, where is your God? And you can see how they get there, the enemies, how the enemies get there, right? Where is your God? Because you're sorrowing, you're weeping, things aren't going well for you. Where is your God? Perhaps God has abandoned you. Maybe, maybe there's stuff going on in your life, some secret sin of which you've not repented. Right? Have you ever noticed uh, when a Christian is afflicted, when a Christian is suffering and mourning, that all of a sudden everybody becomes Job's comforters? Everybody else at church? It's, it's, it's like nobody read the end of the book of Job where, where God shows up and says, you guys were wrong. That it's all of a sudden people come and you're sorrowing and, and there's something wrong in your life and, and just things are going bad for you. And what do, they, what, do, what do people say to you? What do you think God is teaching you? If you're on the receiving end of that question, or if you've ever been on the receiving end of that question, dollars to donuts you have not found it helpful. If anything, that's an embittering question. Because that's the question, that's the question that enemies ask. Because it suggests, well, maybe the problem is you. Maybe the problem really is you. And God has abandoned you. Where is your God? Because after all, if you're sorrowing and you're weeping, that's the question you're asking yourself. Where is my God? When shall I come and appear before God? Why has God abandoned me? Why has God forsaken me? If, if, if God really loves me, I wouldn't feel this way. If God really loved me, these things wouldn't be happening to me. He wouldn't be making me miserable. Where is your God? And of course, this is not just the question uh, that enemies ask. This is the question that the enemy asks. This is a question of the adversary of Satan. Where is your God? You profess faith in a God who is merciful and kind, a God who is all-powerful, a God who is everywhere at all times and is always there to care for his people, who is a rock of salvation. This is the God in whom you profess faith, and yet here you are suffering. It's a question, honestly, that Christians don't need to ask each other, where is your God? Because I'll bet you that most, if not every last one of you, carries 
the voice of the accuser. Right up here. Where is your God? Because God, you drink tears because God is gone. But as you thirst for God's presence because he seems to be missing, you must remember he is your rock. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And it is in turning to God, remembering that he is your rock, that he is a refuge, that he is a hiding place. That is, that, that is the act of remembering God. The act of remembering God. Now, remembering God, the purpose of remembering God is to bring up good memories of what God has done for you, good memories of being with the Lord. But good memories can hurt. Verse 4, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with a voice of joy and praise of the multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. It used to be good to go to worship. I used to be full of joy. Uh, and that was, and it hurts. I pour out my soul within me because it used to be, this is, this is a theme, right, of every country song, of all, at least all the good country songs that ever been written, is like the good memories hurt the worst, right? Like I used to have a pickup truck and a faithful dog, uh, and now they're gone, right? And now I drive, you know, a Kia or something. But that hurts. It hurts to remember those good times. And the good things that I'm remembering here, of course, are being in worship, of being filled with joy in worship, of going with a crowd and worshiping the Lord. And I know it's hard for Presbyterians to relate to joy in worship, but there, I'm sure you've had that occasion where one time, like maybe, you know, you were really carried away and maybe tapped your finger or, or, or actually sang the words of the hymn as though you meant them. I mean, like one of those, that's what he's talking about. And we bordered on being charismatic. Uh, but, that's, but that's a real thing. To have that communion with the Lord of feeling that I actually am in God's presence, that which we know to be true, that in worship we are in God's presence, but actually then feeling that reality, that spiritual reality down to the core of your being. It can hurt to know that that was there and it's not there now, but at the same time, good memories satisfy. And that is... Uh, verses 6 through 8, that's the point of those verses where it says, Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar or Mount Mizar. It depends, uh, I guess it depends what part of the country you're from, if you think it's a hill or you think it's a mountain. Uh, but this is, this is a geographical region. These aren't just random place names that are, being, that are being called out here, but the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, the hill, or, or Mount Mizar, is the headwaters of the Jordan River, where the Jordan River begins, and that's on the northernmost end of Israel. And if you look at a map, it is about as far away from the tabernacle, or the temple rather, in Jerusalem, as one can get and still be within the borders of, of, of Israel. And so it's being, it's being 
unable to get to the Lord while still being part of the true people of God. You haven't abandoned the faith. You haven't left the church. You haven't left Israel. You're holding on to the faith, and yet you just can't get there. You don't have the access to the Lord that you want, and so he is far away. And it's at that point when God is furthest away that you have to remember him. And this is the time. This is, in our day, it's not a question of space. Space, geography of being certain miles away from the temple, for there is no longer a physical temple at which we worship, but rather it has to do with time. This is, uh, this is Wednesday. This is a Wednesday psalm. Uh, we think of uh, the, the, the insurance companies have taken over Wednesday with the camels and stuff, talking about it being hump day. Uh, but there's something to that, right? Not just that you're stuck at work, but it's you're as far away from Sunday, maybe it's, maybe it's actually Wednesday night, I was trying to figure this out, like maybe it's 11 o'clock on Wednesday night, it's, it, but it's in that hour where it's, you're, Sunday is way back here, and it's way down there, and I'm stuck in the middle and I can't get to it. I can't get to worship. I can't get to the ordinary means of grace. I can't get to the word, sacrament, and prayer. Where we draw closest to God in this world is when his people are gathered in worship, and I can't get there. And that's what's being expressed. I have to, but, but when I'm there, when I'm there at the headwaters of the Jordan, when I'm far away from the Lord, I will remember you. I will remember God because my soul is cast down. And what I will remember is the Lord's loving kindness. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. In the night, his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Being surrounded by water, surrounded by water, your waterfalls, your waves, your billows have gone over me. Well, that's God. Uh, the psalm opens, verse 1, with water as a metaphor for God. What do I need? What do I thirst for? I thirst for God. I want to drink from Him. I want to satisfy my thirst. Well, the water, God then, is water in this psalm, the living water from the throne of grace, the living water who is Jesus Christ, the sign of his loving kindness. Your waterfalls, your waves, your billows, I'm surrounded by God's loving kindness. I'm underwater in God because God is everywhere. God is surrounding me and he's surrounding me with his loving kindness. To, you're called to remember this reality in order that you can continue to pray to Him, in order that you can continue to cling to Him. And so, the only solution is to drown in God and cling to His cross. Because that is the God that is the nature of the God whom we serve. That's the nature of the God who is our Savior. See, what people want, what you want is for your thirst to be satisfied. I'm thirsty. 
I just want to drink. I want to drink enough, even that I'm not thirsty anymore, that things are okay, that I feel okay, that I feel good. It's all I want is to feel good. I want to feel at peace. I want to feel at rest. Find another God. Your waterfalls, deep calls unto deep of the noise of your waterfalls, all your waves and billows have gone over me. This is a waterfall that knocks you off your feet and pushes you down underneath the water. Your waves and billows have gone over me. Where are you? You are underwater. You are deep, and you can't get your head above water. You can't, you, you, you can't get up and get a gasp of air because you're surrounded by God. That water is not there. God is not there to make things okay. God is not there to give you peace and comfort and security. God is there to take over your life. And He knocks you off your feet. And it doesn't feel safe. It does not feel safe to be underwater. It's like, it reminds me, the disorientation, the disorientation of verse 7 reminds me of grief. And it's, if you've lost a family member, someone really close to you, someone who just is part of the furniture of your existence, if you will, and that person dies. And everyone has their own way of processing, but for me, it's what, what I keep feeling like. It's like you're walking along. You're just living your life. And then the reality of that person being gone, like being gone, gone. Not just not here, but, but there is no way to see that person again. Can't pick up the phone, can't write a letter, can't send an email. There's just nothing. The person's dead, is gone, dead and buried. And it's like you're walking along, and then all of a sudden you realize that, and, there's, and you look down, and there's just no ground, right? That, that's what it feels like for me, that I'm suspended over this abyss, that, that, that what I thought was reality has just completely disappeared. That's what the psalmist is talking about. That foundation that you thought was there, that security that you thought was there is utterly missing. And it's utterly missing because it's the Lord has taken over your life. Understand what you're getting into when you ask for salvation from your sins. What the Lord does, what the Lord did, was he put aside all of his heavenly glory and he came down from heaven and he lived a humble life 
as a poor man and died a humiliating death on the cross, having done nothing wrong. It wasn't a game. It wasn't easy. The stakes for God were remarkably high. He who is before the beginning put aside all his rights, all his glory, and he entered into the pain of death itself. He suffered bitterness and alienation from his heavenly Father. God did that. The stakes, the cross, by which you were saved from your sins, are are remarkably high for God. There was a great price paid for you by God himself. Therefore, beloved, understand me. He is not fooling around. It is his blood that has washed away your sins. It is his blood which clothes you in his righteousness. It is because of his blood that you will ascend on the last day in the resurrection. It is because of what he did that you have all of these things and therefore He has all of you. He demands you completely. And so you don't get to drink from God. You get God. You are completely surrounded by Him, by His providential care. If it is, if all of this is God, then all of it is His loving kindness. All of it is testimonies of His mercy. They are the means by which He works in your life. Indeed, they are the things by which God works in your life. It is the confusion. It is the grief. It is the sorrow in addition to the joys. But it is all of this confusion that makes no sense. The alienation and the estrangement and the suffering, all of these things are the means by which the Lord has taken over your life. And in the end, there is for you nothing but the Lord. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and in the night his song shall be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. You are safest when you are most out of control. You are most secure when you are being knocked down and shoved downstream and you can't get your feet underneath you. Because then you are surrounded by the Lord's loving kindness. God does not work for you. He is not a safe God. He is not a tame God. But it is better to drown in God's love than to stay safe on the shore. 
There is a river of life flowing from his throne. You should plunge yourself into it, Revelation 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Beloved, hope in God. Misery troubles your soul. We live in a fallen world. The world was made good and perfect, and now it is broken. And so we live in a world which is racked by misery. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? This is the universal experience of every human being. Since the moment of the fall, since the moment Adam and Eve bit of the apple of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ever since that time, we have known sorrow, we have known disquietedness, we have known trouble. But you shall yet praise God. Misery troubles your soul, but you shall yet praise God. You are redeemed. Psalm 42 for all of its confusion, for all of its grief, for all how much it troubles and disquiets, is a prayer to the God of my life, a prayer to God my rock, asking God himself, why have you forgotten me? This is a prayer, then, for the redeemed, for those whose trust is in Jesus Christ, for those who belong to him. It is an expression of faith. And so know, beloved, that you shall see his face. Verse 5, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. He will lift up his countenance to you. He will give you peace. It may be at the end. It may not be until the end when he comes again for us in glory, but you shall. You shall yet praise him. He will lift up your face. Verse 11, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance. The help of my countenance. Countenance, just another word for face. He will lift up your face from your sorrows, and you will know forever that the Lord is your God and your Savior. Beloved, your God may batter you. He may knock you down. He may sweep you off your feet with trial and sorrow. 
but he is your God and Savior. He is your Lord Jesus Christ. And beloved, you shall yet praise him. Amen. Our Lord, we give you thanks for your great mercies to us, that we who are a confused and miserable and sorrowful people are nonetheless surrounded by your love and mercy. And so teach us that hope, we pray. Enable us to hold on to it. Turn our eyes from, believe, from the troubles of this life, at least insofar as it means believing that the troubles of this life is all there is, and rather to look to you, to look to your mercies to us through the cross of our Savior. Our Lord, do surround us, even if it is at the great cost of giving up all things. Surround us and show us your mercy and your loving kindness to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord.